Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and fertility doctor. I practice here in Austin, Texas at Fora Fertility, and today we are talking about one of my least favorite topics, and that's going to be unexplained infertility. What it is, what could be going on, do we really have no clue, and what you could do about it. So before we jump into this episode, I just want to say a huge thank you for all of your support to the podcast. Just had a call with the podcast team and we are approaching 100,000 downloads a month, which is just incredible. And we are approaching 4 million total plays and it's just wild. So thank you. Each one of you that comes up to me at the pool, at Lowe's, while we're hiking Mammoth Cave, and you tell me how much you love the podcast and what it means to you, it really means a lot to me. So thank you. Because you guys really keep me going. We are rounding out the fifth year of the As A Woman podcast, which is absolutely wild, for a little idea that I started in my closet. And now when I hear about how it's being shared, how it impacts your life, how it's used in medical school curriculum. It's just really incredible. So again, I love you. Thank you. Keep the ideas coming because there are days I have none and you guys pour in a thousand and it really means so much. I also want to say that this week the fertility courses are coming back. So a year ago, we launched the Enhance Your Natural Fertility course and the IVF guide. They are meant to be bought together. If you're doing IVF or if you're not doing IVF yet, you can just get the Enhance Your Natural Fertility. It's really a program that has so much comprehensive information in a way that you're supposed to go through it, meaning it's leading you through building on the knowledge. And it's a program that the members who are in the group have just had such incredible success. And I've learned so much from their stories because we've got a Facebook group and we're really able to get a better understanding of what everyone's experience is like, but answering questions that everybody has. The Enhance Your Natural Fertility program is all lifestyle, understanding your body, optimizing trying to get pregnant. The IVF guide is nitty gritty protocols, details, red flags. Highly, highly recommend. But you can check those out on the website, nataliecrawfordmd.com. And I never expected that we would have such a great response to the courses, over 250 course members. And that's just incredible. So thank you guys so much. And I look forward to being able to share 
that content with you. We've made a few tweaks now that it's been out for a year and listened to the members and now the program's gonna be in its final stage. So check out the website if it's something that you are interested in. Also just wanna say that at the end of every episode, we cover fertility Q&A. That is when I answer your fertility questions that you ask on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. So that will be at the very end. And you can call in and leave some of your questions at the phone number for the voicemail. Those are my favorite episodes. We are playing with a few ways to do it potentially differently, but regardless, your questions are my favorite thing. 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Call, leave a voicemail, leave your name, don't leave your name, all is okay. When it comes to unexplained infertility, this is admittedly a very hard diagnosis, purely because human beings, our nature, is to want to understand, to have a problem with a very clear, defined solution. And the idea, even just the name, is really, really tough. By definition, unexplained infertility means that you meet the definition of infertility and the basic fertility tests that we do do not reveal any problem that is identifying why you can't get pregnant, meaning you have regular periods, okay? We know you are ovulating. If you don't have regular periods, bad news bears that you can graduate to unexplained infertility. If let's say you have PCOS and now you're responding to letrozole and you're ovulating and you're trying to get pregnant and you don't get pregnant, well, now you're ovulatory. And if you don't get pregnant, you might graduate into the unexplained infertility group. But to meet the definition, you have regular periods, you're able and you are trying to conceive, meaning the act of intercourse, you erection, ejaculation, that all works. Your fallopian tubes are open and normal. Your uterus is normal and the sperm count is normal. So this is what makes up the main diagnostic criteria. If you walk in to a fertility office and we're going to do testing, we're going to do a good history, see if you're ovulating, talk through how you've been trying, check a semen analysis, check some type of uterine and tubal imaging. Now we should also think about any other known medical problems which might contribute But really, those things alone, plus the definition of infertility, gets you the diagnosis. So if you have been trying to get pregnant for one year and you're under age 35 and you walk into the fertility clinic and we do those tests and they are normal, then they're normal and you now have unexplained. And if you are 35 or older and you've been trying for six months and you walk into the fertility clinic and you do those tests and they're all normal, Now you have unexplained. And this is why those time periods define infertility. And I do think this is important because the reality is if you're under age 35, the average rate of conception per month, depending on your age, is going to be 15 to 20%, which means that most people, most of your people trying to get pregnant are going to be pregnant within six months. Another smaller group will get pregnant in the next six months. And that's when you meet this infertility diagnosis where on population-based studies, 
there's a higher chance something is wrong and you have naturally a lower chance of getting pregnant without intervention. When I see somebody who has been trying to get pregnant for five years, four years, or these really long periods of time, it can be really frustrating for them and for me. And remember, these definitions are presuming that everything is working fine, meaning your period's coming regularly, you're able to have intercourse. If those things aren't happening, don't wait a year. Please go get an evaluation sooner. So when we look at doing these tests and we look at people who walk into our clinic, we now say of new couples in the U.S. trying to conceive who are under age 35, the rate of infertility is one out of five. You previously heard us say one out of eight. So this is a huge shift and this is a U.S. specific number released by the CDC. Why? Why is that number getting worse? Well, one could be more awareness. We're more aware of infertility. You guys have heard me. More people are talking about it. Infertility never used to be on social platforms. This was a deep, dark secret. If you talk about something more, other people are aware and might say, hey, well, I haven't gotten pregnant in three years. Let me go see somebody. So one can simply be more awareness has brought more people into the diagnosis because they were a silent minority. Another thing could be very probably environmental lifestyle, the world. And not just what you're doing, the way we think about lifestyle is we often think about environment and lifestyle as factors that we control. And certainly we do control some aspect of that and what we do every day. And we'll touch on that. But I and the science supports that most likely your reproductive system is most at risk or most susceptible to influences from environmental chemicals or insults or the world when you're a baby inside your mom. So let's just rewind the clock to what decade that was because it was probably the 80s or 90s and that wasn't the healthiest time for America, right? Plastics, processed foods, and if we even look at PCOS and endometriosis, there is shown to be different changes that happen in utero that determine some of the genetic expression that then leads to some of this disease. And likely there is some genetic predisposition that happens in utero and then something that happens later during your life that might trigger some of this. But some of the lifestyle, some of these things you can't control. But admittedly, the world is different than it used to be. And the other thing that is a part of the infertility workup that doesn't cause infertility, but complicates it immensely, especially in people with unexplained infertility, is having low ovarian reserve. Similarly to this exposure insult when you're in utero, that's when you have the most eggs you're ever going to have. You have six to seven million eggs when you are a 20-week baby inside your mom. By the time you're born, you only have one to two million. And you've heard me say that you lose more eggs as you get older. And we know that. So if you have 400,000 by the time you actually start menstruating, and at that time period, you're losing about 20-ish eggs per month or so, imagine what you're losing when you have 6 million. The ovaries are actually in a very dynamic stage of egg loss and very susceptible to the world. So again, we are seeing 
more people with low ovarian reserve? And is it just we're more aware we have tests or is it a real increase? I think it's a real increase. But having a low ovarian reserve, getting a low AMH test, finding out you're going to run out of eggs early. This does not cause infertility. Doesn't that stink? You've been trying to get pregnant. You go through all this testing. Something's off. In your brain, you say, oh, finally, this is the answer. Now I know what's going on. And your doctor's going to tell you, hey, this is bad, but this actually isn't causing the problem. We still don't know what the problem is because you have unexplained infertility. And that statement is mostly true. While we say that AMH or egg count doesn't impact or doesn't cause infertility is because if you have more eggs in the vault, you're going to release a proportional group. So you have about 20 eggs coming out of the vault. Each egg is in the follicle. The brain's going to stimulate follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. One egg is going to grow, develop, and ovulate, and the rest of them are going to die. Next month, another group comes out. When you have less eggs, you're only going to have eight to 10 eggs come out of the vault. As you get even further down, it's going to get to one to two until eventually no further eggs are released. So let's say you're 30. Your body doesn't care if you have 24 eggs out of the vault or six, you are going to ovulate one. And so you have the exact same chance of getting pregnant as all of your friends do who are trying because you're ovulating that one egg. That one egg is what is determining your fecundability, your probability of pregnancy that month. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. 
That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. However, two important things about having low ovarian reserve, especially with unexplained infertility. One, it might significantly impact your family goals, how long you have to grow your family, how many kids you might have unless you act on it. Two, you're going to get less eggs with IVF or egg freezing. We can only get the eggs outside the vault to grow. If you have less, we get less. That is a fact. And number three, and this one I feel like is overlooked really often. Why do you have low ovarian reserve? Yeah, most probably it's because of that mom thing. Whatever your mom did, eating the microwave dinners and and just being a normal human. It's not her fault. She was just a normal human in the United States in the 80s. But what about the increase in autoimmune diseases, inflammatory processes, endometriosis? Those things also decrease your egg count, and we know that. Studies show that people who have endometriosis have a lower AMH. Studies show that people who have autoimmune diseases run out of eggs faster. So we also know that there's inflammatory processes that happen in our body that are occurring at an increased prevalence now than they used to that are also associated with a low AMH. So does the AMH cause your infertility? No. Does it complicate it? Yes. However, I'm a girl who likes the world to make sense. And so I don't love just finding a value and accepting it. I mean, I will accept it. You have a low AMH and we might need to do something different about that. But I am suddenly, my brain has a big flag and I'm thinking, well, why? This is unlikely to be just a coincidence, right? This is most likely related to your infertility. There's probably some underlying cause that is unexplained because it's not tubal, uterine, or ovulatory, or male. But there's something that's happening potentially in your body, and you have a low AMH, and you have unexplained infertility. All right, so let's just talk about what it means really quickly basic treatments, but that's not really what I'm here to talk about. I want to talk about what is unexplained infertility and what I want you to know about it. So if you are just trying to get pregnant, we know that the odds of getting pregnant per month are not a hundred. At our best, at our youngest, at our healthiest egg quality, when you're under age 30, you're looking at a 20 to 25% chance of getting pregnant per month, which in the fertility world is so awesome. However, That's not 100%, so it takes most people a few tries to get there. If you are older, just starting out the gate, never tried before, your chances are lower if you've never had a baby. So if you are between 30 to 33 years of age, it's a 17 to 19% chance of pregnancy per month. If you're between 34 to 37, it's 11 to 12% chance of pregnancy per month. So the numbers drop. And if you're 38 to 39, it's 5% per month. And if you are starting to get pregnant with your first child at age 40 or above, you are looking at a 3% chance of pregnancy per month. And that's the, I just started, I don't have anything wrong. We just want to have a family. So you can see these numbers are pretty surprising for what a lot of people think. And the reason why some of these people have infertility and the older you are, more of your eggs are going to be genetically abnormal and it's going to be harder to get pregnant. That's why this drops over time. 
let's take somebody who's 30. You have about a 20% chance of pregnancy per month and you start trying to get to your definition of infertility. You've now had regular periods and been trying for a year. You are not pregnant. You come into the fertility doctor and you get an evaluation. Tubes, uterus, normal, sperm, normal, you're ovulating. Your chance of getting pregnant now because you have unexplained infertility has dropped to 4 to 5% per month. Significantly lower, yes. Is it zero? No. Okay. If you have now been trying for two years, say, cool, my tubes aren't blocked, sperm's fine. We're just going to keep on trying. After two years, now your chance of getting pregnant per month has dropped even further to be two to 3% per month. And you are still young. You are 30. And that's really part of it, right? Because if you're younger, you really should be pregnant already. So the odds that something really is wrong start to become higher because you haven't had success. Importantly, these numbers are not zero. And that is because everybody will say, I went to my doctor. They couldn't find anything wrong. They told me I need to do this treatment, but I got pregnant on my own. And I love when that happens because it is statistically going to happen to some people. And that's so exciting. But especially if you are trying to grow your family and you want more than one child, waiting years and years to get to each child may not be a very realistic plan, especially if you also happen to have low ovarian reserve. When we look at our treatment options, in general, you're going to go to the doctor. And what we know is if we take the group of people who have unexplained infertility, you're 30 your odds of success are now 4 to 5% with intercourse because you've been trying one year. Everything's normal. Now you want to do Clomid or Letrozole or some type of ovulation induction medication, but you already ovulate. Now your odds of success are 5%. It's not statistically different. There's no improvement in your odds without treatment. And what about an IUI? Is that going to improve your odds? Well, an IUI is actually also not going to improve your odds. You have a 5% chance of getting pregnant. So you have unexplained. You already have sperm. You already ovulate. Doing either of those things independently is not going to help. The two treatment options that really look to help for unexplained, one is going to be doing ovulation induction, but really super ovulation or controlled ovarian hyperstimulation purposely trying to get somebody to ovulate more than one egg plus the IUI. So now we're putting more sperm further and trying to improve the odds that way. All right. So when we do IUI with ovulation induction or super ovulation, now we're doubling your chance. You're getting from four to 5% to eight to 10%, which is statistically different. And that is the least aggressive treatment option that you could do. The second option is going to be IVF. Now IVF is going to be much more successful. Success rates of untested embryos is going to be based on age. In this age group, we would expect to have about a 40 to 50% chance of success with an untested embryo, 60 to 70% chance with a genetically normal embryo. And IVF is much better, right? Those numbers are much better than eight to 10. Those numbers are much better than four to five. Many people with unexplained infertility will need IVF. And the older you are, the increase the odds. So if you are 38 and older, a trial called the Fort T trial showed that skipping IUI to go to IVF as first line treatment saved you money and time. And that's because most of the people are not going to get pregnant with IUI 
and most people are going to need IVF anyway, so it cumulatively got you pregnant faster and saved you money. And when we do IUI, we see success rates start to drop for unexplained infertility after the third. So if you have unexplained infertility and you want to do IUI, we really are going to counsel you that you should consider IUI only up to three times, and then you really need to be prepared to do IVF or to not spend more money on treatment but save up for IVF. And why? Why are these numbers so different? And this is where I want to get to what I think as underlying factors for unexplained infertility. The reality is unexplained infertility is just not common infertility, right? The top causes of infertility are those things that we can test for and that are easy to test. So unexplained really just means you don't fit into one of those categories. And this diagnosis applies to 20 to 30% of all people with infertility. So that's not uncommon by any means. And we know that certain disease groups, certain patients are more likely to have unexplained infertility. So endometriosis may be found in a large proportion of patients with unexplained infertility. So we see inflammatory conditions. We see other autoimmune diseases or diagnosed later. When I think of unexplained infertility, and this is how I tell patients, likely the issue is going to fall somewhere in egg, sperm, or environment. This is exactly what I say. So when we think about the egg, we definitely have egg quality, and we know that patients with unexplained infertility sometimes will have worse genetic outcomes than they should for their age. So having an increased rate of genetic abnormalities for your age, right, your egg quality is less good than it should be. Sometimes also we can see that these couples have had zero fertilizations. So the couple that might get pregnant and have a pregnancy loss or have a chemical pregnancy versus the patient who's seen zero pregnancy tests, the ones who have had a positive test are at least showing some functionality between egg and sperm because we have the functionality and the quality. So there's egg quality, which we know inherently gets worse with age, but other factors impact egg quality too, and we know this. We know that oxidative stress and inflammation are not great for our eggs. So it would make sense that a chronic inflammatory disorder is also going to not be excellent for our eggs. And we know that certain toxins such as chemotherapy and smoking and marijuana also can come in and impact our egg quality. We also have just the structure of the egg. There's hypothesis that maybe the egg, some eggs develop a hard zona pellucida, this outer shell that might make it harder for sperm to penetrate. We have the sperm. The sperm can look good on a semen analysis, yet not be functional. And we have to remember the difference. In a semen analysis, we are looking at how many sperm there are, how they move, and what their shape is. Those factors are important. They are. They are essential. But can the sperm do its job? I don't know, till I try to get it to fertilize an egg, till I try to see if it can do the job. Because a sperm's job is to one, swim to the egg, two, to attach to the egg and allow the DNA to enter, and three, to protect the DNA along the pathway. And yes, if you have less sperm or they don't move or their shape is funky, can they really get the job done, right? Can you protect that DNA? Can you attach to the egg and have the acrosome reaction and let that DNA in. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting 
high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And then there is the environment because egg and sperm are going to meet in the fallopian tube and the fallopian tube is open to the peritoneal cavity. That's your entire abdominal cavity. And that's where all of this inflammation, or if you have endometriosis and you have inflammation, that's where that stuff lives. And so that tubal environment, it's similar to whatever's happening in the peritoneal cavity. And this is one thing that I think is huge about how our body is doing overall. Inflammation, autoimmune disease, exposures can impact the ability for sperm and egg to meet, one, but also that early embryo development. That embryo is developing over the course of the next five days in the fallopian tube, and it needs the right environment to do this. And we know this because if I don't have the right environment in the lab, if my culture media is not the right temperature and pH and doesn't have the right nutrients, those embryos aren't going to grow. So we're delusional to think that the body's environment doesn't matter just as much. And then we also have the fact that open tubes do not always equal functional. And this is very similar to the semen analysis. Do you have to be open for sperm and egg to meet? Yes. The tube needs to be open to pick up the egg and to allow it to let the sperm inside. But let's pretend that there's tubal damage. It's just not fully blocked off. The HSG test, a FEMBU test, a laparoscopy with a chromatubation, none of those are checking if the tube is doing its other job. The little cilia in the tube, which help move the egg along, move the embryo along, help facilitate passageway into the uterus. And HSG is telling us purely anatomy, but not functionality and nothing about environment. And a huge red flag to me is that if one tube is damaged and it's blocked, and we know this, it's very unrealistic for us to expect that the other one is perfectly normal and functioning normally. It might be. There's definitely unique situations. Maybe you had an inflamed appendix and the right tube got damaged, but the left one is very fine. But a lot of times our peritoneal cavity is one big open space. And so if you have inflammation in there from your ruptured appendix, yeah, maybe the right tube took the brunt of it because it's closer to the appendix and it's blocked. But do we really think the other tube wasn't exposed also to some of that inflammation? And do we think it's really functioning normally? This is why when I am talking about doing IUI, especially somebody who is older, who's been trying longer, who's had zero positive pregnancy tests, I do not know what is an IUI really changing. What is ovulation induction plus IUI? How is that really overcoming some of these factors? I mean, maybe if it's egg quality, I'm ovulating a few extra, so I have an increased chance there's a good one. But if the outer shells of the eggs are hard, not changing. If the sperm can't fertilize, not changing. I'm just moving the sperm further down. I'm not putting the better sperm there. I'm just getting them further. 
I am removing some of the debris. So if that debris is slowing the sperm down or causing them to be less modal, potentially, but if a semen analysis is perfectly normal, which it is by definition in unexplained infertility, getting them further isn't really changing much. They still have to get to the egg, fertilize, and protect that DNA. And I do think in some people, maybe it does help. Maybe the sperm has a hard time getting through the cervix for whatever reason. Maybe the DNA is getting damaged in that portion of the journey. These are hypotheses. But the environment is absolutely the same. The sperm has to be able to do the job. The egg has to allow the sperm in. Fertilization has to occur in the fallopian tube. And that early embryo development is happening in your body. And this is why I think we are seeing an increased focus on lifestyle changes specifically targeted to lowering inflammation. And even though lifestyle, nutrition, natural fertility, these are population-based cohort studies and it's very hard to change one variable. And people who are healthier in one behavior tend to be healthier in other behaviors. So it's hard to interpret one specific thing as being the thing that helps people. But this is why I'm always talking to my unexplained infertility patients about is there inflammation? Can we decrease inflammation? Something to think about. How do you do that? You decrease it one by the foods that you eat. Can you eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains? Stop processed foods, stop processed meats, stop eating sugars and artificial sweeteners at least daily or on the regular basis. Start getting enough sleep. Sleep is when cellular repair heals itself. That's when your body is allowing itself to fight inflammation. So if you're not sleeping enough, you're not helping yourself. Try to lower your cortisol. Try to find purposeful ways to decrease stress because being chronically stressed is associated with more inflammation. Try to avoid toxins, extra exposures. If you know that you're struggling, are those things really helping you get to your ultimate goal? And this goes for sperm as well. And then it goes to what about the environment? Could there be endometriosis? What we know based on endometriosis studies is that if you have laparoscopy, right? Surgery is how you diagnose endometriosis and you have stage one or two disease and they go in and they excise it. And then you go and try to get pregnant with ovulation induction and IUI. Your odds are now going to be the same as somebody with unexplained infertility, eight to 10%, not higher, not back to your natural conception rates. And IVF is overcoming a lot of these variables. So there has been a trend to not diagnose endometriosis in infertility patients, because a lot of the treatments we have, we're not really seeing surgery make a huge difference. If you have stage three or four disease, IUI is 1% chance of working and you need to do IVF. Some people, surgery is beneficial because it allows you that knowledge to bypass IUI with late stage disease. It allows you reprieve from your pain if your pain is impacting your lifestyle. So I don't want to act like endosurgery doesn't have a place, but when we're talking about your fertility and your goals, if you have unexplained, I'm reviewing the endo stuff. And we have to remember this is so hard. It's a diagnosis with surgery. Some people with terrible disease have no symptoms. Some people with mild disease have really bad symptoms. The general symptoms are painful periods, especially as a teen. Your body tends to adjust and your brain tells you that this is normal. Pain with intercourse, especially in deep penetration in certain positions. So it's not just that insertional pain or discomfort, but it's actually 
like, hey, I don't like being on top because that is so deep. It's hurting a certain area in my body. That's not normal. And then GI changes. When you have that extra inflammation around your period, really seeing a change in your GI habits and a lot of endo patients have a high association with thyroid disease, celiac disease, other autoimmune diseases. And we see that there is a sensitivity and a lot of patients will start to weed out certain food groups with this IBS diagnosis, trying to figure out what makes them feel better. And it's undiagnosed endo all the time. But so you'll see me say presumed endometriosis on a lot of patients' charts. But what we know is that when you look at this group with unexplained infertility, IVF is really overcoming a lot of those things because I'm taking the eggs out of the body. I am able to insert a sperm into the egg. So if the egg has a hard outer shell, that's not an issue. If the sperm can't do the acrosome reaction to get into the egg, not an issue. I'm overcoming those if I do ICSI, certain type of fertilization, which not everybody does, but I like to do it with unexplained infertility patients because I don't know what the problem is. And if it's fertilization, I sure don't want to get a day one report that none of your eggs fertilized. And I'm changing the environment. And this is huge, right? Because those embryos are growing out in the lab in that perfect pH and temp and nutrient-rich environment with no inflammation. And even though I'm not modifying it by doing genetic testing of embryos, I am able to know which ones are genetically normal and at least have a higher chance of getting you pregnant faster. And if you do fall lower on that scale, we get the opportunity to decide, should we do another cycle Should we save embryos for the future, which can be huge for family planning. And I do see that patients who have unexplained infertility sometimes, not always, but sometimes have a higher rate of genetic abnormalities than we would expect. So I personally do recommend it to my unexplained couples, even if they are young, because I love data and it helps me make decisions that are best for you and best for your full goals. So when we look at this, to me, This data is probably explaining a lot of what we may be seeing, right? We know that with genetically normal embryos, once you get there, your odds of success are relatively the same regardless of your diagnosis. But if you have obesity, they're lower. Why? Even if I have a donor egg, if you have a donor egg and you're doing just the frozen embryo transfer and you're overweight, why is your odds of success lower? Because it's not egg quality right? It's not embryo development. It's probably on the inflammatory pathway. Inflammation levels are higher if you're overweight, and that is also likely impacting implantation. This is definitely a huge area of research. This is definitely something that people are trying to focus on. Inflammation, embryo transfer, inflammation and autoimmune disease, and how that impacts your fertility. I think personally, What we're going to see is a lot of these people with unexplained infertility are going to have diagnosed autoimmune issues later in life. It takes women seven years to get diagnosed with some of these things. And you might not present with your symptoms until your forties, but if you're trying to get pregnant at 30, potentially is unexplained infertility one of your first symptoms. That's a thought that I have. So if you are trying to get pregnant, what do I want you to think about this entire process? Number one, first of all, if your periods are not regular, normal, if you're not having intercourse, go get an evaluation. Number two, 
don't wait longer than you have to, and you can always get an evaluation sooner. Number three, unexplained infertility is not zero. So even though your doctor tells you these numbers and IVF clearly may do better, but you choose to wait a little bit longer and you get pregnant, fantastic. I mean, we're all so happy for you. It also means that if you have this diagnosis and you have a baby from IVF, don't think you can't get pregnant naturally afterward. You certainly could. But thinking about getting your evaluation, understanding the disease, understanding why your doctor may be recommending things. If you're older, especially, does ovulation induction IUI make sense? The studies say it really doesn't, but does it for you? If you're younger, does it make sense? Based on your clinical picture, your symptoms, concern for possible endometriosis, maybe it doesn't. Maybe for your family goals, it doesn't. So think about that. We know that ovarian reserve is lower if you have autoimmune issues, if you have endometriosis. So certainly inflammation and autoimmunity also play a role in our egg number. So if you are that person, you have unexplained infertility plus diminished ovarian reserve for your age, red flags, what is going on? Those people to me, I'm really thinking about IVF sooner than later doesn't mean we don't try IUI, but we're counseling really depending on the context of the full picture. If you think, or you know, you have endometriosis, if you have other autoimmune diseases, bring this up to your doctor. They should know, but bring it up. Hey, I'm concerned. I have endometriosis because I have terrible periods. I missed school when I was a teen. I want to cancel dinner plans with friends. Certain positions are really painful and have a discussion with them about how that data may change what they're recommending, or at least know it to yourself. Is it worth it to do surgery and find out what stage you are? Maybe. Is it enough knowledge to kind of push you into the IVF zone? Maybe. And then I want you to make lifestyle changes no matter what, if you pull into the unexplained category. And my goal is to drop inflammation. So let's just use a last example. You go out to the restaurant, you have margaritas and chips and queso and you have a great time it's texas after all but you wake up the next morning and you're puffy and you're sluggish and you're tired and you didn't sleep enough and your body is just not in a happy place it's also not in a happy place to get pregnant can people get pregnant after margaritas and chips and queso all the time all the time but if you are having trouble you are having trouble is this the time period where you want to shift your thinking and say hey I want to try to lower my inflammation as much as possible. This doesn't mean never, right? It's your birthday. It's a wedding. Yes. But being low inflammatory in your life on most days is going to allow your body to have the margaritas and recover from it much faster than if you're doing it every single day. So I really want you to look at your life to do what you can do because this is hard. Infertility sucks. Unexplained infertility sucks worse and put yourself in a position of power. So can you change your sleep habits and get more sleep? Can you start taking daily walks, do weight training and yoga instead of HIIT classes? Can you lower your stress with therapy, meditation, acupuncture, saying no to things you don't want to do? Can you eat foods that you cook at home that are whole foods a diet full of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains as your primary source of nutrients and limit out processed foods, processed meats, added sugars from the day-to-day basis. These are things you can do. 
these are. And this is probably in the same breath why certain supplements may help certain people, even though this data is so murky. Coenzyme Q10, your vitamin E and C, your N-acetylcysteine. That's why in some studies, patients who have known inflammatory diseases may do better on those. That's why in some studies, men who have high levels of oxidative stress in their sperm may do better if they're put on an antioxidant protocol. So you take charge of what you can take charge. Get the data that you need to make good decisions. Most people with unexplained infertility will have success, but very often, most of them are doing IVF. And I just think knowing that information is helpful as you are trying to plan your family. All right, we're gonna get quickly into For Fertility's Sake, our weekly Q&A. This is where I answer your fertility questions that you ask on Instagram every Monday. You can go to Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, ask a question. Some will be answered on Instagram. Some will be answered on the weekly podcast like we are here, and some will be answered in the newsletter. You can also sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. And that has fertility in the news and Q&A and my favorite things and discount codes and all kinds of stuff. So definitely it's not spammy. I'm trying to keep you updated with the fertility world. And then again, you can call in and also just leave a voicemail for your questions. Those have a higher chance of getting answered because there's fewer of them. 657-229-3672. All right. Once you get your BFP, which stands for big fat positive after IVF, how does your monitoring change and what is the process? So if you go through IVF, you have an embryo transfer. We are typically checking a blood pregnancy test about eight to 10 days later, depending on exactly when you have your transfer. You will be continuing your transfer medications. This is generally progesterone for sure, sometimes an estrogen. When you get a positive HCG, it's pretty standard to repeat it at least one time in two days. We should have a doubling. If you see that, great. What we do then is schedule an ultrasound for two weeks later when you're six and a half weeks pregnant. At that point, I should see a sac and a baby with a heartbeat. Remember that when you're getting your BFP, when you're getting your pregnancy test, you are four weeks pregnant. So crazy because when you put the embryo inside, you were two weeks, five days pregnant. Wild. If everything looks good at that six and a half week ultrasound, then we'll bring you back two weeks later check for good interval growth, that everything still looks good, and then we'll graduate you to your OB and tell you how to come off medications. Your insurance often doesn't cover lots of OB scans, and there are clinics that will do an OB scan every week from five weeks to 12 weeks. They will draw levels. They will take your money and each to their own, okay? So every clinic is going to have a different process. For us, occasionally we will see people more frequently, but typically that's because we're worried about something. If your HCG is not rising appropriately, then we're going to repeat it more. We're going to see you earlier for a scan if we're worried that something's not going well. So if you have the standard two betas and then you come in for two ultrasounds two weeks apart, you're rocking and rolling. Everything looks perfect from our end. Does having a COVID infection prior to an FET negatively impact outcomes or implantation? Well, we know that COVID is very inflammatory and we know that COVID can even flip people into autoimmune diseases and people develop long COVID. There's a lot to COVID that we don't understand. We don't have a study on this because we'll cancel a lot of patients if you have a COVID infection in that lead up period. At least when COVID levels were really high, that's what we were doing. 
But in general, my thought is yes. Anytime you're ill, anytime you have a fever, anytime your body is focused on a disease, that is not the best time to put an embryo in your body. Your transfer should be canceled if you have a fever or if something new is developing because your body has to also be convinced that it can get pregnant at this moment. Is it common for IVF to change when you normally would ovulate by four to five days? Absolutely, especially in the near term period. And I will sometimes forget to warn patients this, that your app or your calculator becomes a little unreliable. It uses cumulatively when you tell it your period is to start calculating out when you're going to expect your next one. So one is that things are going to be shifted because you've been suppressed or you've been on hormones and we've pushed things. And two, if you keep tracking your LMP throughout the IVF cycle, that's your last menstrual period or your first day of your cycle, and you're going through IVF and transfers, it's going to start to misinterpret your cycle length because those are artificial periods that we are usually telling you to have at certain times based on hormones. So I would stop tracking it in your app if you like to use that app to know when your period's coming because it is going to become unreliable for that. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for everything, for supporting the podcast on our way to 4 million. And as always, I just appreciate you. You can follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter, and look out for the natural fertility and the IVF courses if you want to learn more. And there's also a ton of great information over on YouTube. So if you haven't joined the YouTube family, I love it. Picture visuals go so great with fertility stuff and more bite-sized topics. Everything is around 10 to 12 minutes. Hope you guys have a great day. Thanks for your support always. Bye friends. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. 